You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. You're listening to the First Tech Podcast, and I'm your host, Craig Day, and joining me today to discuss the latest news on the technical issues impacting advisors and their clients is three of my team. Um, I've got Julie Fox, I've got Tim Sanderson, and Alex Denham that's going to be chatting about a whole bunch of different things. So before we get on to that, um, first things first, I need to address the federal budget that was obviously handed down on the 25th of October a couple of weeks ago. Now, this was the Labor government's first budget for this term of parliament. Uh, and in terms of big ticket announcements uh, likely to grab the attention of a financial advisor and potentially impacting their clients, it was a pretty quiet night. Um, in fact, it was more interesting in what was actually not announced than what was announced on the night. So, for example, we didn't see the government make any announcements in relation to the already legislated phase three tax cuts. So these are the tax cuts uh, impacting high income earners uh, that are due to take effect on the 1st of July 2024. So it seems that we're going to get those tax cuts when they come through or high income earners will get them when they come through. Um, also, we didn't see any changes to any superannuation caps or thresholds. So For example, we didn't see any changes to freeze the indexation of the transfer balance cap, as some people in industry had suggested may actually happen on the night. Also, we didn't see anything about limiting the total amount people could actually have in super. So this is something that's kind of new. And what's happening here is a couple of industry associations are suggesting that we should apply a limit to the total amount someone can have in superannuation. That's in both the accumulation and retirement phases combined. Um, Now, there has been some suggested we could have something like a a total superannuation balance cap. uh, And there's a lot of discussion about where that amount should be set, whether it should be set at 2 million or 5 million. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, discussion to go on this. Now, obviously, the government didn't make any announcements on the night. However, since budget night, we have seen the government or the relevant minister in this situation make some public comments in relation to measures, these these types of measures to confirm it's looking to curb the tax concessions available to wealthy taxpayers that have amassed very large superannuation balances. So lots of tax concessions go into superannuation. Do we really need to provide tax concessions to someone that's amassed, let's say, $20 million in a self-managed super fund? So I think we're highly likely to see some sort of changes come through uh, down the track on this one. Obviously, we've got a federal budget in deficit uh, and we've got a government looking to to repair the damage. So uh, in that situation, we do have to wait and see, though. So that would obviously, you know, the government said it themselves, that that is something that they're certainly looking at. Now, if you want to know uh, more about the budget, what actually was announced on the night, uh, then we can provide you with our federal budget briefing paper. So you can access that via the first site, just go into our uh, budget federal budget um, tab there and we've got all the information for you in our first tech federal budget if i could speak our first tech federal budget briefing paper uh 
or you could just give us a call in the Fistic team and we can probably email that out to you without too much fuss. So, uh, so yeah, if you want to know more about the budget, get in touch or go and look at our website now. Okay, moving on to some transfer balance cap news. Now, over the past couple of months, we've seen some suggestions that the transfer balance cap is actually pretty likely to increase by $100,000 to $1.8 million on the 1st of July 2023 due to indexation. However, actually, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen the release of some estimates that could actually suggest it might increase by $200,000 to $1.9 million instead. So, Tim, what's going on here? Well, that's absolutely right, Craig. So the reason for that is that the transfer balance cap, unlike a lot of other caps, is indexed by increases in CPI rather than uh, wages or average weekly ordinary time earnings. And given the high rate of inflation that, that we've already recorded in Australia over the last year, the CPI figures are actually already high enough to result in the transfer balance cap going up by 100000 on 1 July next year. So, okay, so but why are we now talking about an increase of $200,000? Well, the reason we, we now think it may increase by 200000 is that the recent federal budget, the paper, indicated a forecast showing inflation was predicted to be seven and three quarter percent by the end of the year. And that would result in the transfer balance cap increasing all the way to $1.9 million, but, but only just. Um, but more recently, in early November, the RBA actually came out with updated projections, and that showed that it now expected inflation to be about 8% by the end of the year. And that higher um, sort of estimate would obviously increase the chances that we're going to see it increase, the cap increase by $200,000 all the way to $1.9 million. Okay, but also I had a look at that RBA paper and that's also predicting that inflation will also moderate throughout next year. So what if that happens? Yeah, well, that's certainly true. The prediction is it may also moderate through next year, but it actually won't make a difference to the transfer balance cap for 1 July next year as the relevant CPI figure used to calculate that indexation each 1 July is on the prior December quarter figure. So assuming that December 22 CPI figure is high enough to trigger that increase of 200000 even if inflation from then does start to moderate early next year, the increase is already going to be locked in. Oh, okay. Wow. So, you know, it took, what, four years to go from 1.6 to 1.7 and then, you know, two years and we're potentially seeing an increase from 1.7 to 1.9. So what does all this actually mean for advisors and their clients? Well, I guess if we have a client with significant super savings that is getting to the point where they're thinking about retiring in the first half of next year, then one thing they could consider doing is delaying the commencement of their first retirement phase income stream until 1 July or shortly after. And the reason we do this is that a person's own personal transfer balance cap Um, is equal to that general cap that we've been talking about in the year they first start their first retirement phase income stream. So you tell me if if I delay until 1 July, I'd get a transfer balance cap of $1.9 million instead of $1.7 million if, say, I commence my first, you know, account-based pension one day earlier on 30 June. Yeah, absolutely. Timing really of the essence there. So delaying just by a couple of days 
could allow a client to get an extra $200,000 into the tax-free retirement phase. Um, and that's assuming that I've got a client here with that much superannuation. If if they're commencing a retirement phase income stream, they're really going to go nowhere near these large amounts. And there's probably going to be less point in delaying in those circumstances. Okay. All right. Well, what if I've got a client that's already commenced a retirement phase income stream, such as an account-based pension? So what does this all mean for them? Well, for clients in that situation, it's important to remember that they only qualify for proportional indexation of their own cap based on their unused cap space. So depending on their circumstances, they could see their cap increase by an amount that is double what they may have been expecting. But calculating that indexation is going to be a little tricky because it's going to take into account um, a range of variables, including their current transfer balance cap, which may have already been increased once um, on 1 July 2021 due to previous indexation. So as a result, it's probably beyond the scope of what we're trying to explain um, here, but we will certainly release an article um, to show an advisor how to calculate that in the new year once it is confirmed that the cap does index by $200,000. Yeah, well, I suppose that's going to be really important. If I've got a client commencing a pension, or a second or third pension, and you know they've got the benefit of this proportional indexation, we're really going to make sure that we get that calculation right on what their new cap's going to be after the 1st of July. Now, obviously, we can look that up via the, the MyGov site, you know, ATO Online Services. But if we've got a client wanting to start a pension early in the new year, we're, we're going to have to get that calculation right because uh, if we get it wrong and we use too much to, to start that pension, then they're going to end up with an excess transfer balance cap determination and and tax and penalties to pay. So, um Really important to get that right. Now, is there anything else we actually need to be aware of here? Yeah, so probably one thing we need to also be aware of is that this all assumes the government um, doesn't propose to change the rules to potentially freeze the transfer balance cap at its current level um, as a sort of simplification measure with this this, uh, complexity around indexation. And that is something that some industry commentators have suggested may occur. So, yeah, keeping an eye on whether there's any future announcements is going to be quite important. Yeah, I guess like anything, there's there's always legislative risk um, and that therefore I guess I suppose, you know, the next federal budget in May could well be an important one to watch if we've got clients that, you know, may be impacted by all of this, these potential changes. Anyway, uh, I think we'll move on now. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Ray. Okay, moving on to the next issue. Alex, in a previous podcast, we mentioned the upcoming increase in the income thresholds for the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card. Now, I believe this is now passed and is effective from 4 November. So what are these new income limits? That's right, Craig, it has. So from the 4th of November, the income thresholds under which you can get uh, access to the Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card. Uh, for a single, we now have 90,000 up from 61,284. Mm-hmm. And for a couple combined income, 144,000, and that's up from $98,054. So that's, as I say, effective from 4th November up to September next year. Okay, so obviously really significant increases. Can you explain how income assessed for Commonwealth Seniors Health Card? purposes. 
Uh, yep. So it's based on adjusted taxable income. So unlike a lot of concession cards like the low income card, it's actually based on taxable income rather than Centrelink's definition of income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it uses a previous year's ATI uh, or adjusted taxable income known as the reference year. Now, generally, this reference year is the year immediately preceding the current tax year. Um, but if you don't haven't received a notice of assessment yet, you use the previous year. So in other words, mm-hmm. if you're applying for it now, the reference year would generally be 21-22. But if you haven't got a notice of assessment for that year, then you go into the year before. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so what does that mean for advisors? Yeah, well, it actually, so a couple of things. It's basically a... Well, not only an opportunity, but probably an obligation, or it's really important that advisors then look for look into their existing client database and look for anyone who may who hasn't been qualifying in the past. So obviously they're looking for their self-funded retirees that aren't on mm-hmm. age pension, who mm-hmm. may now qualify, and it's a way, it's a time to get in touch with them and uh, see if they can, uh, you know, do an assessment to get under those new thresholds. And remembering though. They're looking at last year's income, not necessarily current year income. Yeah, this year's. Okay, so if we're going to put in an application, we're going to need to know what their adjusted taxable income is. So what does that include? Yeah, so it's broadly taxable income, of course, taken straight from, straight from your notice, notice of assessment. And then you add some things back in. So you've got total net investment losses are added back in, targeted foreign income, employer fringe benefits for the applicable year, and any reportable super contributions, and that includes income that's salary sacrificed into super. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, a question we do get a little bit, or we do get occasionally, is can we salary sacrifice so, into super in order to get the card? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so basically, um, that means it also, sorry, it also includes deemed income from your account-based pensions, and that's for all new applications. There are grandfathered account-based pensions, which will, which I think, which we'll, we'll touch on after this. But for these new applications that will be going in, your deemed income from your account-based pension will count, even though income from account-based pensions, of course, is not taxable. That gets added back in. So that's, you know, that advisors might recall that deeming rates have actually been frozen for for two years from the 1st Mm -hmm. of July this year. Um, So the increased thresholds plus the frozen deeming rates could actually work together to help more clients get onto that card. Okay, so can you see any other opportunities that's going to come out of this? Yeah, I think there are some opportunities. So there might be some clients that have grandfathered account-based pensions. So as I mentioned, they're they're now deemed unless they're grandfathered. And they're grandfathered, just briefly as a recap, if they were purchased, um, they've been going since before 1 um, January 2015, and they were on the Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card at that time and have continued to be so ever since. And what that means is, no income from that account-based pension is counting towards their towards their assessment or their income assessment. And I've certainly seen quite a few situations over the years where people are actually, what that means, they're, they're caught in account-based pension products that they don't necessarily want to be in. Mm. Because as soon as you roll over to another product, the grandfathering breaks, all right? It's it's gone and, then, and that account-based pension gets deemed for your Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card. So for a lot of those self-retire, um, self-funded retirees, Keeping that grandfathering is really important. So now, though, this might give open up some opportunity for some people to actually roll over those account-based pensions. And certainly in my advice days, I had a few situations where I had widow 
uh, widowed clients with SMSFs and they would have a large account-based pension of their own plus a reversionary, a grandfathered reversionary account-based pension from their from their deceased spouse. Um, so two large account-based pensions, grandfathered. They were really stuck in that SMSF. And in a few of these cases, they just wanted to wind it up. They weren't really wanting to run it anymore. They're getting elderly and it was becoming onerous for them. Um, and so now that these with the increased threshold, it's time to relook really at those sorts of clients and there could be an opportunity there to wind up those SMSFs that they've been wanting to do for some time. Yeah, because even if we we commute and roll over to something that's more appropriate for them or get them out of an SMSF, um, yes, we've got income counting, but because of these much higher thresholds, it may mean that they don't lose eligibility. Yeah, um, exactly. And, you know, when I look, I look at my, my parents, you know, they've got a self-managed fund, the self-funded retirees, um, and every time I mentioned maybe winding that thing up and going to something a bit easier, uh, and previously there was a discussion around eligibility of the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card, and my mother would look at me like I was some kind of lunatic, suggesting that we would do something to lose that Commonwealth Seniors Health Card. Oh, so I am okay. certainly having conversations with them now about uh, is this the time potentially to wind that up? And by the way, you won't lose, you know, your effective, what yeah. they think of their Commonwealth Seniors Health Card, is almost like their age pension entitlement. Um, yep. because they've never got age pension. So, you know, this is their kind of goal card kind of thing for them. But uh, Well, absolutely. My yeah. father's the same. But also just remember, though, deeming rates are frozen for two years, so they're yeah. going to be low. But yeah. but look beyond two years. So Two years down the track, deeming rates will come back. And, you know, so if they're, if they're close to that threshold, then that's maybe something we don't want to do. But if yeah. they're a long way away, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. I think that... Pretty much sums it up. Thanks, Alex. Moving on to Julie. So, Julie, what I want to talk about now is as we approach the end of the year, what's going on in Parliament? Hi, Craig. Yeah, um, it's coming towards an end now. Um, At the time of recording this, the House is just finishing their sitting and there's a few developments we'll talk about. Um, But only eight more sitting days of both houses before the end of the year. Um, And it's really the Senate we're interested in, um, uh, in getting legislation through um, because it's passed the House now and and we're waiting for the Senate to pass it. Okay, so now there's a range of uh, issues that we're interested in here. So let's start with Social Security. What's going on there? Yeah, so as Alex has already discussed, the Commonwealth Seniors Health care card bill um, received assent. So the increased thresholds from the 4th of November are all done and dusted. That's in law now. Um, But other developments we're watching on the social security side of things include incentivising pensioners to downsize bill. Okay, well, (laughs) remind me, what's that about? Um, well, Well, this one aims to support pensioners during the sale and purchase of their main residence. So um, currently there's a 12-month exemption on the sale proceeds when you sell your principal home from being asset tested and the proposal is to extend that to 24 months and also to apply the lower deeming rate to these exempt um, assets from the sale proceeds when calculating the deemed income. So these two changes um, are aimed at reducing the impact of selling and buying a new principal home uh, on an income support recipient's rate of payment. Uh, Now, the Act will commence on the later of the 1st of January 2023 or a month after royal assent if the bill takes a bit longer to get through. 
it's always important to look at when the changes will actually apply. Um, and in this case, the changes are proposed to apply if the sale of the person's principal home occurs on or after the commencement of this bill. Ah, so, wow, that's actually, that last point you make is really quite important. So if I understand that correctly, what you're saying is if someone sold their home today and the sale proceeds are currently exempt from the assets test, therefore for 12 months, their exemption period is not going to get extended next year. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. I was, I was just talking to an advisor okay, how today are... with a client in that position. So unfortunately, if you're already in that position that you've sold, then these new proposals aren't going to apply. Okay, but if they sold their home after the bill commences, which will be either 1 January or maybe later, then they are going to, they're going to get the full 24-month exemption and a lower deeming rate on the proceeds to boot as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Okay, so some important timeframes to look out for if, if you've got a Centrelink clients that are looking to sell their home shortly. And, wow, that could really allow them a lot more flexibility if they wait a couple of months for this bill to pass the Senate and receive a to send. I suppose they've just got to worry about what house prices are doing as well. Um, anything else to note on that legislative front? Um, another social security measure that uh, was announced last year, if you remember, is the temporary $4,000 increase to the amount of work bonus that someone can bank. So that increase will take it from uh, a total of $7,800 to $11,800. And that was proposed to apply immediately from the 1st of December this year until the 30th of June 2023. But due to the delays with getting the bill passed in Parliament, it's only passed the House so far, uh, this temporary period um, was extended by the House to the 31st of December 2023 and it would commence seven days after the bill receives assent. Ah, so the time frame, the time frame here is, is really a... A moving target by the sounds of it is that right yeah yeah the earliest we could see for the start date if the bill was passed by the senate in these upcoming november sittings and received sent shortly afterwards that the earliest would be early to mid-december that it would start and if the deal sorry the deal if the bill doesn't pass in november then we're going to have to wait until early next year for any progress. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, Parliament doesn't start up again until about February, so it would uh, really delay that one if that was the case. All right. So for those clients hoping to utilise this over a summer holiday job or something like that, if they're going to do that, um, if it doesn't get through, we're, we're it's really a wait and see. Okay, so enough for Social Security. Uh, what else is in progress? Well, the main super measure that's in progress is the reduction of age, that you can make a downsizer contribution from age 60 down to age 55. So that one has passed the House and now needs to be passed by the Senate and receive assent to become law. Okay, so we've already seen the reduction in downsizer from 65 to 60, and that took place on the 1st of July this year. 
So this was announced in the election campaign, wasn't it? It was the, the federal government came out and said, we're reducing it from 60 down to 55. And the the opposition, Labor opposition at that time said, anything you can do, we can do as well. Yeah. Um, and so it sounds like that's actually uh, in bill form before the parliament. Um, so when's that likely to actually start? Well, that could start. Um, as early as 1st of January or more likely the 1st of April, depending on when the bill passes and receives assent. If it passes the Senate in these November sittings and receives assent uh, shortly thereafter, um, then we could see that 1st of January start date. Otherwise, it's more likely that it will start on the 1st of April. Um, Absolutely. Worst case scenarios, it could get pushed out to 1st of July or 1st of October next year. Okay, so what you're actually saying there or what the bill's saying is it takes effect from the first day after the end of the quarter in which the, the bill actually got passed through and assented. Exactly. Okay, so if it if it gets through before the end of December, it's the 1st of January, but if not, if it gets passed maybe in February sittings or something along that, then it's the 1st of April or the 1st of July or the 1st of October. It all depends on when it, when it gets assented. Um, so not long to go now. We've got eight more sitting days this year and then Parliament doesn't sit again until around, I just think I suggested February. Is that is that about right? Yeah, traditionally that's that's how it works. We haven't uh, seen the sitting calendar for 2023 yet, but uh, traditionally, yeah, they um, pick up Parliament again around February. Okay. All right. Now, moving on. Thanks, Julie. Moving on to some self-managed super fund news. So, Tim, I'm going to come back to you. Um, Specifically, what I want to talk about is these new director IDs. So, what are director IDs? They're basically a unique number that all company directors are going to need to obtain by the end of this month at the latest. Now, these are being introduced to present to prevent you know company phoenixing type activity or false or fraudulent director identities. It's all about directors setting up companies and doing the wrong thing and then shutting them down and going setting up another company somewhere else and and playing these games again. So if we've got the one director identification number, then uh, then ASIC can track that person and and know that they're trying to do it again. So obviously trying to to prevent all of that sort of activity now. You might be sitting here listening to this going, what on earth has this got to do with a self-managed super fund? Well, if I've got a corporate trustee, uh, then I've got to have directors of that corporate trustee and these rules apply to those directors of that corporate trustee as well. Now, Tim, we've got, a, as I intimated, a key deadline approaching for the end of this month for getting these IDs. Uh, is that right? Um, yes, Craig. The, so the, a key date of 30 November 2022 is approaching for a, a substantial proportion of the directors out there. So anyone who became a director on or before 31 October 2021 needs to ensure that they have a director ID by that 30 November 2022 date. Um, for people who became directors uh, after that time, then depending on when they became a director, they'll either need one they would have already had to have one either within 28 days after their appointment or before their appointment, depending on the day they became a director. There's very limited circumstances uh, where someone can apply for an extension um, and also penalties can apply where they don't have one by that required date. But really there's this latest date of 30 November 2022 for a substantial proportion of the existing directors out there. Okay, so if I can just summarise that. So if I've got a client 
that has set up a self-managed fund with a corporate trustee on or after the 1st of November last year, then they already actually need to have their director ID, right? Because if it was between the 1st of November 21 and the 4th of April, they needed to get one within 28 days of appointment or from the 5th of April this year, they needed to actually have one of those director IDs before they even set up their self-managed super fund. Exactly. So it's going to be those corporate trustees that were in place prior to 31 October 2021. That's where this looming deadline may be approaching. Okay. So for, for the client that set up their SMSF maybe in 2008, have a corporate trustee and they're a director of that corporate trustee, um, they need to apply by the end of this month. That's right. And look, word on the street out there is that there is still a substantial proportion of directors who need to get a director ID by that deadline who haven't done so as yet. So time's yeah. certainly running out. Yeah, I could certainly imagine. I mean, the vast majority of self-managed funds are going to be established um, prior to that, to that, you know, 1 November 2021 date. Um, and so the deadline for all of those people that have a, a corporate trustee and they're a director of that um, is the end of this month. So that's going to be a lot of people. And as we're hearing, uh, a lot of those people do not yet have uh, a director ID. Now, obviously, they're going to have to get moving. Otherwise, they're potentially going to hit, get hit with a penalty. Now, do we have any further info on this requirement? Uh, you know, if they haven't applied yet, what do they need to do? Sure. So they can apply either online via phone or by printed form. And if they're applying online, which, you know, is probably the quickest quickest way to go, um, they need to first go and get a MyGov ID. Now, that's different to the MyGov website. Um, and once they've got that, they can then apply online for a director ID. Um, we've got an article on the First Tech site. If you search for it, it's called SMSF Director ID Requirements. And that discusses the steps that you need to take to apply for one online, by phone, or by completing a paper form, as well as just some um, detailed information about that director ID requirement and those timeframes that we mentioned earlier. Okay, so just to reiterate there, I actually needed to go and set up my own MyGov ID uh, just recently. And uh, I've also got a MyGov account. Setting up a MyGov account took me something like 45 minutes to an hour of my life that I'm never going to get back. But that <laughs> MyGov ID process was pretty efficient, actually. So, And you do that via your, um, your your smartphone. Now, guys, thanks. I think that pretty much sums it all. Thanks, thanks for the chat and the latest news. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventius Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.